Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, the Huawei CFO loses her case in a B.C. Supreme Court and must stand trial and be extradited to the United States if warranted. Good news in Ontario. Uh, we've had our second day of under 300 new cases of COVID-19. And Torstar, owners of the Hamilton Spectator, have sold. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Breaking news just uh, a little while ago, uh, 2 o'clock our time, uh, a B.C. Supreme Court, uh, in a B.C. Supreme Court, the Huawei CFO has um, lost her case and must continue uh, with extradition, uh, with the extradition case uh, into the United States. She cannot go back to China at this point. The uh, the extradition process will continue. To talk about this, let's bring in Charles Burton, Brock University and Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and with us now. Charles, thank you for taking the time on short notice. Much appreciated. Um, what are your thoughts on this uh, ruling today? Are you surprised? I'm not surprised by the ruling. I mean, most extradition requests by the United States to Canada are, in fact, found to be justified. And the, um, you know, an argument was made by Ms. Mung's lawyers that the basis of the extradition request was not uh, really about bank fraud, but instead uh, Huawei's violation of the U.S.'s Iran sanctions, and Canada at that time did not have such sanctions. Therefore double criminality uh, does not apply in the sense that she didn't do anything that would be illegal in Canada. That argument was rejected. And now we proceed uh, further with the extradition process where there are a number of other issues such as was uh, fraud actually committed or do the, did the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank already know that, that Huawei was doing business uh, in Iran on the sly? Or, um, you know, were there irregularities in the process of her arrest? Or uh, is the allegations of fraud, um, allegations such that the evidence is not sufficient that, that the case could proceed in Canada. You know, there are many, many things that can go on, and that's why this thing could drag on for years and years to come with appeals and delays and so on. You know, it's uh, really not a question of uh, justice delayed is justice denied in our system. It seems that, you know, things that seem relatively straightforward can stretch out for a very long time with an awful lot of billable hours for lawyers. Hmm. How significant is this decision? What does it mean for Canada moving forward? Well, it's very bad news in terms of Canada-China relations. Um, the Chinese government um, simply will not accept that Prime Minister Trudeau cannot simply telephone that judge and tell her to release Meng Wanzhou hmm. forthwith. And so that the uh, Chinese authorities have already suggested that um, if Canada does not immediately release Hmong and send her back to China, there will be continuous harm to China-Canada relations. So the question is, what further retaliation would the government of China um, enact on Canada? Would they start to block our access to PPE? Um, would they um, proceed further with Kovrigan's favor, maybe um, making them do a forced confession on the television as other foreign nationals who have been arrested by China under similar circumstances are obliged to do? Or would they have a, a secret half-day trial where Kovrigan's favor would be um, subject to um, a penalty, including the death penalty? You know, there are a lot of uh, options for an essentially um, venal regime to enact to, to express its displeasure with Canada. 
and it's possible that the Chinese regime will start to do some of those terrible things. Uh, we all know how uh, the image and the attitude towards China has changed. Does this amplify that in any way? I, I, I think that uh, you know the decision itself is uh, is a sound judicial decision, um, right. well argued, uh, based on uh, legal arguments, clearly with no relation to any political pressure. You know, I've, I've just uh, finished reading it, and I'm always impressed by. Uh, how well our, our senior judges are able to to argue on legal principles of justice, and this one is a well-argued decision. Um, I think from that point of view, it shows that our government is not um, bowing to Chinese demands to try and abrogate the process in any way, and so I think that's a, a, a good thing in terms of us um, indicating that we're not that we're going to stand up for what's right in our relations with China and and. Uh, if the Chinese choose to retaliate, so be it. If the Chinese government does do further retaliation, then I think uh, it's time that our government start to do some, uh, uh, take some actions in in response that indicate that Canadians have some backbone and will not be um, bullied by a regime that has great economic uh, authority and which has considerable um, influence maybe very much undue influence in our political and corporate circles. Uh, this all started with a U.S. extradition warrant. How are they viewing this today? Are they Do they care? Oh, I think the United States would be very upset if um, it turned out that Ms. Meng would be returning to Beijing without being accountable for the serious allegations of criminality that, that the U.S. Uh, court in, in the state of New York alleges. And so, from that point of view, I, I should think that um, you know we've uh, we've dodged a bullet in terms of uh, of a deteriorating relationship with the United States. Um, I don't think Donald Trump would have taken it very well if uh, if uh, you know we had not complied with a legitimate extradition request by the government of the U.S. You talked about how China will retaliate uh, against Canada for this. Will the U.S. help us when China starts to bully Canada again? Well, they didn't before, you know, really. I mean, uh, congressional um, resolutions have been made expressing concern about Kovrigan's favor, and, you know, the the U.S. government clearly understands that Canada is being subject to utterly unjustified economic and diplomatic retaliation. And, you know, it was a claim that Mr. Trump raised it with um, the Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party General Secretary and President of China, Xi Jinping, but uh, clearly the U.S. is not prepared to go the extra mile to defend our our people in this, and that is highly regrettable. I think it's a sign of uh, the reduced influence of Canada in the United States, despite us being a very important trade partner for many states in that country. Uh, Charles, you only got a less than a minute left. What is next for the Huawei CFO? What happens to her? Well, she goes back to her mansion and, um, you know, engages her lawyers and tries to come up with some other way to convince the judge that the extradition shouldn't go through. And uh, I think she could be in Vancouver for a good long time as a result. Charles Burton has been with us, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member, human and social sciences, health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and with us now. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. 
So, uh, uh, again, the second day in a row where we've had new cases in Ontario below the 300 mark, uh, 292 new cases today. I think it was 284 new cases yesterday. Is that significant in any way, Khalid? Yes, that means that we're probably getting closer to what we want to hope to see one day, which is lower in number of cases. I think what's, what is alarming, though, that, is that there's a study that showed that Toronto, the GTA area, is actually seeing the most number of cases in all of Ontario. And so policy analysts, including myself and others, are looking to maybe potentially be looking at specific policies depending on the city. So that closure and reopening happens per city, per specific urban area, or demographic rather than a pan-Ontario sort of national strategy, something that the government is not willing to do and instead is uh, uh, reinstating and reinforcing the idea that it should be an Ontario-wide policy and when we reopen and what gets reopened. Uh, concerned, uh, well, many were concerned last week as things started to reopen. We did start to see a, a spike in cases as they did go above 400 again for a brief period of time. How do you explain this dip below three and considering where we were and what we saw in the parks a week or so ago, could this easily jump back up in a week? Absolutely. So numbers always will fluctuate and that's just the nature of a pandemic. Uh, the more people that get tested, the more we reopen, people are more engaged in the community, the, eventually the rates will get higher and then it'll dip lower and then it'll go back up. So there's, it's very difficult, what I'm trying to say, to really say with confidence uh, one way or another. I mean, if anything, COVID-19 has showed us is that projections and modeling data have not been the most accurate and that we actually need to develop more innovative models to actually get more accurate results. Do you get the impression, doctor, that Canadians and Ontarians are getting the message? I mean, there seems to be the odd slip up here and there, but it, it still seems, and, and I'm sure these numbers are encouraging to Ontarians as well, are, are we still understanding that we have to keep up uh, the defenses? We have to keep uh, that two-meter distance. We have to wear masks when we can't do so. I think for the most part, yes. I mean, if you walk around uh, in the streets and urban settings, you'll notice that People, for the most part, are really sort of understanding that COVID-19 is still a real threat, that we need to stay on guard. Uh, But there will always be a subset of population that will discredit that or want to believe otherwise. And and to be fair, this is not to shame them at all. It's just to say that people are in different mindsets about how they want to deal with COVID-19. And we have to understand, too, Scott, that some people are frustrated with the current situations. And their way of reacting to it might just be that they just, stop you know, following the rules, as we want to say, when it comes to COVID-19 and exercise their own sort of measures of how they want to deal with it. And unfortunately, sometimes those measures people exercise have, a, have a consequences on others. Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us from Wilfrid Laurier. We're waiting for uh, Premier Ford's uh, news conference. Uh, your thoughts on the extremely horrific report we got yesterday, Quebec got theirs today, from the Canadian Armed Forces about their experience when they went into, I believe, five homes, uh, five senior institutions in Ontario, and I think about 25 uh, in Quebec. Your thoughts on, on that information that was released yesterday? Scott, this literally breaks my heart, and I think it's one of the darkest things that we've seen in a long time that comes out of Canada. I think it's a shame that our long-term care centres are in tragic conditions, and I hope that COVID-19 is the change we've always been advocating for, for those centers. We've seen from the reports that came out that there are rats, there are ants, there's fecal contamination in some of the patients' rooms. It's extremely difficult to self-isolate the patients if there's a contamination. And so all that to say is that the state of our long-term care centers in Canada, for the most part, is horrific and requires some 
substantial, substantial reforms across the board. And I hope and I know that the government is looking at that report and and really trying to take action on improving those because that cannot happen anymore. Um, maybe this is uh, outside the medical uh, sphere, but, you know, a lot of people are now pointing fingers. Is this something we blame politicians for? I mean, my goodness, it's not like it's new. A lot of us have known about this. Is this a societal issue? Is are, are, is society to blame for not supporting this issue as perhaps it's not as fashionable as others? I think you bring up a good point. I think that our state of our long-term cancer center is not new information. I mean, some people are pretending like this is breaking news. This is not breaking news. We've known about how bad those long-term centers. And what crises do is that they put a magnifying uh, sort of glass on problems. They make us see them on a much bigger magnitude and scale. And that's why now sort of everybody is involved in this response. So it will require a multi-sectorial response. It is not just a government thing. It's going to require many different people, individuals and, and sectors to step up and really look at to how do we can change this model because the way it currently exists, and Canada is not special in that. Other countries around the world that have similar models of long-term care centers are equally struggling, uh, and we need to just think creatively about how to develop new models to combat that. Uh, a lot of what we're hearing is staffing issues, just simply not enough yeah. uh, uh, people, bodies in the, these facilities to do the jobs that need to be done there. What do you think will be done to address staffing issues? You know, we've, we've heard many say that, you know, it's a minimum wage issue where I have a problem with that simply because I'm not, I don't think a PSW should be paid minimum wage, whatever that value is. They, they, mm-hmm. They're a skilled worker that we depend on. They should be that, that shouldn't even be in entered into the discussion how do you think we are going to make this more attractive to people who want to get into this industry or any other levels of the healthcare industry you're getting a delivery arrangement of how we actually go to deliver the healthcare services in those centers so the part of the problem right now is that there are mostly most employees there are part-time employees that shift from one site to another and and by the way that's part of the reasons why let me know when the press conference happens and that's part of the reason why we saw a high rate of COVID-19 in those centers, because part-time employees were going from one site to another. So you're right. We need to change the model. We need to make them full-time, and we need to pay them equitably so that it's a fair wage for the services they're providing. We've talked many uh, at length on, on many different issues on how life will change post-COVID-19. Uh, is this that moment for for our seniors and for the healthcare system? I mean, is it, will this actually have an impact post-COVID-19 or once things start to open up and we get a vaccination? That's eh, another issue we've forgotten about. No, I hope that it will be the change. I think this is the first time in a long time we're seeing such a magnified uh, sort of viewpoint into what uh, long-term care centers look like and the tragic and horrific conditions in them. I think the old infrastructure is old and simply does not support proper isolation infrastructures. We really need new ones, better ones, innovative ones, and we need to re-examine the model across the board. So we need to look at how we pay the employees, how we support them, but also how we create physical space that allows, in case of an outbreak, that we prevent uh, mass contamination of people. Um, How do you think society will react or is reacting to the fact that many have said this isn't new? These are points that we've known about for a long time. Does that resonate? 
Yes, and I think, I mean, we saw with the SARS outbreak in 2003, Scott, that much of that outbreak back then really showed us the gaps in our society. So we realized back then that we needed a new public health Ontario agency dedicated to improve the health of population. So looking at public health programs. Fast forward now to COVID-19, many of the problems that existed that we, we thought we solved in 2003 are still here. We didn't have a national sort of strategy to implement public health programs. Long-term care centers are a big problem still. Uh, the hope is that this crisis, because of its magnitude and the scale of it, uh, has really will change things forward. With any policy decisions that get made, one of the most important elements to get the policy improved on the decision agenda of government is to really capitalize on how big the problem is. And there's nothing in our lifetime that has been as big as COVID-19. Good point. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You well. Thank you. Uh, Let's go right to uh, Dr. Anna uh, Banerjee, uh, a faculty lead, Indigenous and Refugee Health, uh, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, and on the line now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, You must be encouraged by the numbers down below 300 in Ontario. We saw some spikes over 400. We're at uh, 284 yesterday and 292, uh, I guess, new cases today. What does that say? Um, I, I think that a lot of the hot spots, like long-term care facilities um, and the healthcare providers in the hospital outbreak, that seems to be going down. And I don't know if it's all because of the, you know, the physical distancing that people have been doing, or or just the nature of the virus that now the weather is getting a bit warmer. People are not. Um, usually in the summertime, the virus, viruses tend to go down. So we don't really know, but it is encouraging. Uh, many have talked about a second wave. Many may have thought it would start to happen now as we start to reopen. Do we know anything about timing for a second wave? And I guess that's, you know, a second wave is inevitable simply because we are now going out uh, a bit more, albeit with, with uh, self-distancing regulations. What about the timing of that second wave? Um, it's usually from um, up to two weeks from the, the exposure. So you have... Some people who have been exposed, um, and then they may have symptoms or may not have significant symptoms. A few of them will have major symptoms, and and then they may be spreading to other people. So the more we open up, and we, we open up um, stores and uh, parks, uh, as long as people are coming out of their houses, and uh, we're probably are going to have a, an increase. Um, so are we likely to see that over the summer as regulations, as you said, open up a bit, or will that come with a flu season in the fall? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is quite a bit of um, community spread right now of COVID, and most of the people have very mild symptoms or are asymptomatic. Uh, I think that, uh, so we don't really know. I think uh, with the, the province opening up, testing and encouraging people who are asymptomatic to get tested. I'm not sure that's the greatest strategy because you might have had COVID two months ago or a month ago or even last week and your test will be negative. And so we know that there's a lot of people out there that are asymptomatic and are potentially spreading the virus and the test is not 100%. So if you, if someone has a lot of symptoms and they their test is negative, they should still stay at home. And, how and can... Think, no, sorry, go ahead. 
So I think the messaging really needs to be that anyone who has any any kind of symptom that's different in the next little while, that does, there's no explanation. So it's not a urinary tract infection or something else. While they're sick, they should stay at home as we open up. Uh, how concerned are you with the stage one opening where we are at now? we got about a minute till the premiere. Um, I think it's a, a natural progression of things, and I think that there will be an increase. But uh, I think that if we try to keep the most vulnerable people out, out of the circulation, um, you know, keep the seniors away, people with underlying diseases, cocoon them, and and other people are getting it, like kids, and they generally have milder, milder symptoms. I think that's just the way things are going to evolve. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, uh, McMaster University. Lots to talk about today, uh, including uh, Torstar being sold, which are owners of the spec, uh, the Huawei case that's uh, moving forward uh, with the Huawei CFO in Vancouver today. Uh, Marvin is with us now. Marvin, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Glad to well. be with you. Glad to be with you. All right, let's start with the senior situation and this report that came out from uh, the Canadian Armed Forces and such. Uh, we have discussed on this show this is the first crisis of our privileged generation. Uh, do we blame politicians for this, or do we blame society for letting this get lost in the sauce and, and focusing on much more fashionable issues that make us feel good? Mm-hmm. Well, for it for us to uh, either blame ourselves or, or blame society, that would mean we'd want to take responsibility. And unfortunately, when it comes to some, not all, but some of our seniors, out of sight becomes out of mind and out of my world to be to be concerned about. And I, I think it is a bit of a con- condemnation of all of us, but I don't think all of us want to take responsibility. Therefore, this will become a political hot potato, lots of finger-pointing, Andrea Horvath will be in rare form for the next week or two, and Doug, Doug Ford will feel her wrath for sure. Uh, I guess NDP provincially are the only ones that could really uh, stand strong on some of these positions, considering uh, prior to this government, it was the Liberal government that was in place for 15 years. But again, is, is that a valid stance? Well, you know, I... Personally, I always say, rather than complain about how the problem came to an exist, I want to know what we're going to do to make the problem go away. I, I yeah. tend to be more forward-thinking. There's always lots and lots of time to take uh, and point fingers at people, but that doesn't solve the problem. And, and COVID-19 may have exposed a nasty underside to uh, uh, seniors, long-term care facilities, etc. But But I don't want COVID to come to an end and then go back to business as usual. What is our path forward for all of this? Uh, that's what I'm more focused on. But I, I know, again, it, because politics is this game of I've got to win because you've got to lose, there's going to be lots of hay made about this in the next few days. And, and by the way, I don't be, won't be surprised if somehow or another the federal government will also get dragged into this. After all, there are there is an MP who is the Minister of Senior Services. Chances are Mr. Ford is going to say, well, we don't have a universal policy on the standard of care. Where's the federal government and all this? Everyone's going to get dragged into this maelstrom. Um, considering um, to, to those involved in the industry and those that have been following, following these reports for decades, there is really nothing new here. Is the argument going to turn about privatization versus 
uh, public funding of these homes. We certainly know where the health care system is now. Can we afford to now jump into uh, into this game? Can private industry run these? And since we're licensing them, can't we can't we have better control over all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the answer to your very last question is yes. You know, the whole idea of licensing, whether you're licensing a restaurant or you're licensing a bar or you're licensing a, a senior's home, is uh, twofold. First, you've got to meet certain standards when you open, and then you must maintain those standards when you operate. The concern here is not the first part. Uh, I think these people filed their applications appropriately. They were vetted appropriately. But what was what was the watchdog component? Uh, I don't know how true this is, Scott. I'm not that close to the seniors industry, but I heard last year in Ontario there were only five physical reviews of homes, five times where people actually went to the homes to see if they were delivering the standard of care, and yet there are hundreds and hundreds of these homes, that doesn't seem to me like an effective watchdog on this. So I I think licensing probably has let us down on this. Is it against public versus private care? I'm not sure I would tarnish it that way. Certainly here locally, we've been seeing a number of stories in the Hamilton Spectator around seniors' homes run by, I think it was called a Martino family, and who've had a bit of a history of, of bad care. But just as much as that may be true, there are private sector homes that are not part of this investigation in which no red flags are being waved. So I don't think being public or private necessarily means good versus bad care, but I do think it is about uh, are we investigating, are we doing the, the proper inspections, and um, what is the motivation for people running it? If profit trumps care, then that's where the problem begins to come. What can governments do about this system? Well, I I don't think the answer is to turn it all into the public system and and make it all on the public purse. Again, we maybe just don't have enough money to make all of that happen. But I think uh, if we're going to have standards of care, then we must inspect to ensure that those standards of care are being delivered. And that can't be an inspection once every 10 years or, or five years. We need to have it almost like, again, our restaurants, where every year every restaurant in the city is visited and uh, they are given a score, green, yellow, red. Uh, and if, obviously if it's red or yellow, there are things they have to change and then they are reinspected to make sure those things are changed. I would think that's the sort of what I'll call the minimum standard that we need for our seniors' homes. Uh, it was interesting. I was watching an interview last night with a former inspector who is actually a nurse, and she was saying, again, this is just anecdotal, but she was saying you can throw as many inspectors as this is, as you want. Uh, things are altered after inspectors leave, and at the end of the day, this is something that requires not inspection because there is no wholesale system change to ex- inspect. It is what it is. So if if there's, you know, she said less about inspectors, more about putting in a set of guidelines so they have something to inspect and keep up to a certain code. Well, uh, you know, fair enough. When I say inspect, I'm assuming that there are certain standards around cleanliness or around food or around uh, a personal hygiene for those people under the care that are being inspected. If those standards do not exist, then yes, step number one is to put in a more rigorous set of those standards and inspect against those. And uh, maybe, again, I am a naive man, but uh, I used to remember this magical thing that I saw in war pictures once upon a time called snap inspections, where you don't get a phone call in advance. Mm. I just show up and I take a look at the way it is. For sure, if I have to arrange the inspection, then I'm going to see everything a little more spit and polished than I would normally. But But that isn't the way you inspect things. You want to see 
the restaurant in operation. You want to see the seniors home in operation, not with a week to get everything fixed before you show up. And then as was pointed out, then it goes back. But her first comment, if there are no standards, again, I'm not close to this industry, but I would think you would want standards around uh, the personal hygiene. How often are, are people in these beds being bathed? Uh, what, what is their uh, protocol for changing the sheets, changing the linen? What is the cleaning? Certainly at the hospital there are these kinds of standards and, and the care in our hospitals, although occasionally we get outbreaks of certain diseases that come because of lack of those standards, but on balance our hospitals live up to it. Why can't we expect the same of our seniors' homes? Good point. From what we're hearing from this report, uh, a major issue in all of this is staffing levels. There just simply is not, are not enough people, personal care workers in these institutions uh, in order to to uh, to implement uh, any sort of protocol. Um, and, and then we've heard chatter about the minimum wage issue. See, this is what happens when you don't raise the minimum wage, to which that, that to me sends up a massive red flag on how we think of personal care workers. Why would we put a, and again, nothing against those that work at McDonald's or, or Tim Hortons, but why would we put a personal care worker in that same category? Is this about raising the minimum wage or is this about raising the standard for personal care workers and getting them out of that category? Yeah, and, and I, again, I'm sorry, I don't really have an answer to that question the way you have phrased it. Um, I know many, many people who have had a career taking care of older people in seniors' homes, and for them it's as much about a calling, if you will, to take care of the elderly as it is how much they're getting paid. We need to make sure we are compensating people in any job appropriately, and something that's come out of the COVID-19 crisis is this idea that some people are, quote, essential, and in fact, we've seen in Ontario and in other provinces essential workers being given a bit of a raise for how they've stepped forward during this difficult time. Well, well, wait a minute, you know, if they deserve the raise, don't they deserve the raise in regular time, not just during this extraordinary time? Mm. So I'm sure compensation is a bit of it, but I, I don't think it's compensation alone. In other words, I don't think there's someone who's saying, well, if you paid me $20 an hour, I'd take care of those people a lot better than if you only pay me $14 an hour. Once once you take a job, at least most of us, when we take a job, we're trying to do the best in that job. It may be, however, that the funding from the province for each bed, and, and remember many people going into seniors' care are not paying for all of it themselves. They don't have the money to do that, and so these homes get a certain stipend per bed per day. Uh, is that at the appropriate level? And, and again, in the name of, of budget efficiency, you know, we're only going to give you a 1% raise this year, but their inflation might be 2% or 3%. If you don't match inflation, then they've got to cut a corner somewhere. And, and that's, that's the thing that might concern me. So this, this might be an opportunity for the government to say, well, if we're going to be serious about this, and Scott, sorry, I'll just ramble for one more second and say, whatever the state of this is today, please remember, please remember that we are an aging population. There are people who are in their early days of being a senior or people in their 50s who see seniorhood not that far down the road, we're going to see those numbers of people going up before they start to go down. There's a whole bulge going through our population. Mm. Now is the time to fix this and get this right because it's only going to see more people in homes in the future. All right, let's move on to uh, the other big issue, certainly uh, in southern Ontario, the selling of the Toronto Star, Tor Star, which, of course, owns the Hamilton Spectator. Your thoughts on this deal? 
Well, uh, the, the, the deal is a couple of things. Uh, uh, the amount of money probably struck most people as relatively small. I think it's $52 million, yeah. and you think $52 million. You know, there are baseball players that are paid more than $52 million. Um, uh, the other thing they're doing is, is of course, it's changing ownership, but then it's going private. And then going private, the, the people behind this, uh, there's a Mr. Mr. Bitov, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, um, they said that they felt that the demands of being a publicly traded company uh, get you into short-term thinking. And then they're correct in a way because you have to report your results every quarter and you just then have to justify your results every quarter. And if you are undertaking some sort of a, a change in the way you are planning to operate your media empire, it could take more than three months to implement the bottom line with most media today is you really can't afford to be a standalone entity. You must play in multiple uh, um, markets in a way. So if I am a newspaper in four different cities, I do have to have some staff in each city, but in an economy of scale, let's have one person cover the Toronto story and then we'll share it with the other people. But but beyond that, we need to be on the web. We need to be Internet, so we need to repurpose stories uh, and probably we need to partner in some way or another with uh, radio and TV to then provide this multi-platform world. Younger people today move between these different platforms to get their messages. Anybody who's just trying to be just one thing, I'm only a radio station or I'm only a TV yeah. station, is really limiting themselves. And I, I'm wondering if this is the part they're going to take the Toronto Star private, but then they're going to add a couple of other pieces to it. Uh, to then allow the Toronto Star and all of its papers to play in some of these different markets. That's really the only way this survives. A uh, tough industry to be investing in, so obviously they must see some sort of new model in this, do they? Right. I think that has to be the case. To run the Toronto Star simply as the Toronto Star, there is some efficiencies you can do. Uh, I, I hate to use that word efficiency. Certainly here at the Hamilton Spectator, we have seen a number of uh, reporters retire and not be replaced more use of wire services or, or national news desks as getting news. And in a way, that makes some sense to me. I'm not sure there is a Hamilton version of a national story or a Hamilton version of an international story, so why would a Hamilton paper have a Washington reporter? Wouldn't it be better to use a pooled reporter? But if that's all they're doing is, is getting rid of some of those, creating those kinds of efficiencies, I don't think that's enough. Today, you've got to be thinking about media in many platforms. Again, not to, not to point out what you folks do at CHML, but CHML, it is a radio station for sure, but you have a very uh, active website there. As you point out, there are podcasts there. There yeah. is actually typed documents or printed documents that I can read, and sometimes even incorporating some video, say the press conference of the of the premier or the prime minister, you're not just a radio station anymore. And that's true of all media going forward. Uh, if you're an employee of Torstar or the SPAC, how do you feel? How do you, how do you, how do you digest this today? Um, well, I'm, I'm happy in the sense that none of the reports talk about uh, changing any journalistic standards. The, um, the Torstar was operated by five families, and I think it was called the Atkinson Principles of Round Fairness. No one's talking about changing that. Um, you like the name Bitov, Bit, the Bitov family is worth quite a little bit of money, so they've got some deep pockets to support you, but change is always scary, and, and without someone painting a clear picture of what things look like two years, five years down the road, I imagine there is still some trepidation out there. 
just as there would be with, say, the National Post and, and what's going on with it. So, you know, people understand media is in a period of transition. We're just not sure a transition to what uh, I would say, you know, sort of modestly happy but still concerned. Uh, and, you know, uh, obviously in the old days, each media outlet or each platform serviced uh, sort of had their own uh, uh, area to service. And what we're forgetting about newspapers, although we may not sit down and read a physical newspaper anymore, they have very, very uh, complex newsrooms and investigative reporting capabilities. And uh, hopefully they can find a way to survive in some way. No, absolutely right. And and I think, again, we, we don't want to diminish the local content. If I'm a citizen in Toronto, I don't want to know who died in Hamilton, but those obituaries are very important in that local community. We want to know if the Tiger Cats are doing well. That story may not be all that important in Kitchener or... I don't know, something at Waterloo University be very important in Kitchener, not that important here. So there always has to be a spin on all these media outlets to serve their local community. But news is more than just what happens next door. It's also what happens nationally and internationally. So there are, there are some savings. There are some ways of passing some of this around. But I don't think what the BitTobs are doing are strictly uh, those kind of cost efficiencies. They must have a different model they hope to implement over a three- to five-year time horizon. They haven't shared with us what that is, but to just remain a standard newspaper, those kinds of days are limited, I'm afraid. All right, can't let you go, Marvin. We've got about a minute left asking you about uh, what's going to happen in Vancouver today at 2 o'clock with the Huawei CFO being in court. Either way, either way, either decision that comes down, uh, it's not necessarily a good picture for Canada, is it? Win or lose. Well, you know, I'm going to say something that may be controversial here. Right now, if the court says, you know, uh, the case has not been made to extradite Matt among the United States, you're free to go, and she hops back on a plane and flies to China. Had this happened six months ago, we'd be angering the Trump administration, and who knows what Donald Trump's wrath is going to be. But he's quite diverted these days with coronavirus. If that condition comes down that she is released and free to go, I don't know if there's a lot of negative repercussions to this. And from Canada's standpoint, there might be a significant change in the way China treats us. Remember, we have two people who are incarcerated. We don't think there's any reason to keep them in jail. If Madam Mung was free, I bet they will be freed within the next week or two. Remember the canola that they weren't going to buy or some of those other things? Suddenly we might get those contracts back. I'm really kind of hoping that she is let go because she didn't violate any laws in Canada. Having said that to you, I do understand the rule of law. And if the court says, no, 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 you should be extradited, all that's going to lead to is another court challenge. Her lawyers are prepared to now issue a challenge that her uh, civil rights in Canada, her constitutional rights were violated by the thing, and it's just going to drag it on even more. I'd like to see us use this opportunity to get this behind us. Marvin Ryder, business professor at Group School of Business, uh, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. I will. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.